You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. We walk specifically an issue that the church has undertaught, that, uh, an issue, excuse me, uh, that I believe the church oftentimes oversimplifies and over generalizes. If you have a Bible with you, please go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 55. That'll be our text for today. Psalm chapter 25, a text written by David as we continue to study his life and see him in many ways as a model of what it looks like to actually pursue emotional wholeness as we accept the realities of the life that God has given us, that we want to be able to accept and appropriately celebrate and acknowledge all of the blessings that he has given us. And also, we want to be able to appropriately acknowledge, experience, and express all of the difficulties, the pain, and the sorrow as well. I've talked about processing emotion. I've called it specifically appropriately acknowledging, excuse me, acknowledging, experiencing, and expressing emotion. Appropriately acknowledging, experiencing, and expressing emotion. So again, we've talked about gratitude in the first week. We've also talked about lament last week, everyone's favorite topic to get into. Today, I want to talk about something different, something called reorientation. Reorientation. There are many psalms in the Bible, many of which are written by David, where he reorients himself. The term reorientation is the act of changing the direction or focus of something, the act of changing the direction or focus of something. In this psalm, in Psalm chapter 55, we're going to see David actually pivot in his focus and his emphasis in this psalm. And he'll start off with lament. We'll see that just as we saw last week, but then we'll see a shift. We'll see a change in his emphasis and his focus as he reorients himself to look to God. I'll start in Psalm chapter 55, verse, verse 1. We're going to work our way through the whole psalm, so we'll try to move through it uh, pretty quickly. I want to tell you what I would love for you to be on the lookout for, specifically in the first part of this psalm as we get going today. I want to, I want to ask you to try to relate to David as much as you can, to, that when you see him express something or experiencing something that you felt before, I want you to intentionally try to feel David's pain as he expresses and even gets into some very personal pains that he has had. Psalm 55, starting at verse 1. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint, and I moan because of the noise of my enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge Against me. If you're familiar with David's life, you know that he experienced oppression to the highest degree as the king of Israel at the time sought to kill him because he was jealous of David and what God was doing in David's life. Verse 4 My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. David is processing his fear. His anguish, his pain, all of his complaints to God. He feels overwhelmed by the horror of those that want to do him harm. Continue on verse 6. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I will fly away 
and be at rest. Yes, I would wander away. I would lodge in the wilderness. Selah. Some of us in this room relate very strongly to what David is saying right now. If you've ever been in a place of such difficulty and you felt like if I could just get away, if I could just go somewhere else, maybe I moved to another city, maybe if I got another job, maybe if I just changed this and that, then maybe I would be able to be free from my trouble, free from all my pain and my distress and sorrow and grief. Maybe I could just run away from all of these problems that ail me. This is what David is longing for in this time of such pain and distress in his life. Some of us have felt that way before. Verse 8. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. And this is where David gets real and raw with God with his emotions. Verse 8. Sorry, verse 9. Destroy, O Lord. Divide their tongues. For I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. David said, I'm seeing brokenness not only in my life. This problem is everywhere. I'm seeing it in the marketplace. I'm seeing it in the city. I'm seeing it on the walls. God, this brokenness is everywhere. Everywhere around me, this injustice. Then in verse 12, he gets incredibly personal. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar Friend, David is saying the one that is after me to harm me isn't someone who originally was an enemy, but somebody I trusted. He says it's someone that I called a friend, someone that I cared about, someone who was a companion to me. I don't know if you've ever experienced betrayal before when the one who should be standing side by side with you instead is in front of you to fight and harm you. Some of you know what that's like. We can empathize with David here. Maybe you've experienced people in your life who should have been there to protect you, but instead were there to harm you. This is where David is. This is what David is experiencing. He goes on about this person that was his friend in verse 14. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. David is saying, man, we used to worship together. We used to take counsel from the Lord together. We grew together. And now you have become an enemy to me. And this is where David gets raw again. Verse 15, let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. David, and many times this happens very frequently in the Psalms, David is very raw with his emotions with God. David doesn't wait until he has filtered all of his thoughts and all of his words and ways so he can say everything in the, maybe the most uh, politically correct way before he talks to God. He gives God exactly what it is. God, I wish you would kill them. He is real about his anger. God is not afraid for you to come to him with the anger that he already knows is in your heart anyway. He is already very aware. He invites us to cast all of our cares on him, to come to him with our raw emotion, where we're at in our sinfulness. God, this is just where I am. This is how I feel. This is just what I want. This is where I am. Is your relationship with God real enough? That you come to him with just where you are. The lament, the pain, the frustration, the anger. Hopefully you have some type of a friend that you can come to and be raw and be real about what you're feeling. Is God that type of friend to you? Do you believe and trust him that much? That you can bring to him the greatest anger 
that you have. We see David doing just that in the first 15 verses, but then we see this reorientation, this shift that begins in verse 16. It's not that he stops being raw and honest with God. He continues to be real about the reality that he's in. But when we get to verse 16, you're going to be able to see that he also is real about another reality, and that's the reality of the goodness of God. That David begins to reorient himself, shift his focus from only talking and thinking about his problems and his suffering and his pain, and he progresses to not only, it seems in the beginning, he's, it's like he's preaching about all, everything that's wrong with the world, but then afterwards he begins to preach to himself about the goodness of God and how good he is. I want to ask you to note how many times David, how many things specifically about God David points out in the rest of this psalm. We start at verse 15, but I call to God, first thing he says, and the Lord will save me. He's proclaiming truth about God. I, I call to God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan. And here's number two, he hears my voice. He is reminding himself of the goodness of God. He is preaching to himself in the middle of his pain and his fear and feeling overwhelmed with all of the horror in his life. He is preaching to himself another reality and a greater reality, which is the goodness of God. Verse 18, this is number three. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. Verse 19, fourth thing, statement he makes about God, God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old, Selah, because they do not change and do not fear God. He goes back to the, his personal issue and problem with this one who was his friend. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. He's still acknowledging the betrayal, the pain that he feels. Verse 22, cast your burden on the Lord, reorienting himself again. And here's the fifth thing he says about God. He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. And then in verse 23, the last verse of the chapter, still proclaiming the goodness of God to himself. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. He concludes in this place of God, which is in line with the scriptures, vengeance belongs to the Lord. God, I trust you. I trust you to be judge. I trust you with all the pain that I have been feeling. I will trust in you, God. I'll just let you handle it, David says. So we want to make sure this is important because we'll come back to this. The sequence of this psalm that we see David going through starts with lamenting his problems and his pain, then he moves to reorienting his thoughts back to God, and then ultimately he finishes on choosing to trust God. He goes to God, laments his problems, laments his pain. He's real about it. He's raw. He's not holding anything back. Then he goes on to remind himself and preach to himself about God and who he is, reorients him, his thoughts back to God, and then proceeds by choosing to trust God. This shift is very powerful and important. He processes and acknowledges his emotions and his responses to all his problems, but his emotions don't rule him. He's able to acknowledge them. He's able to consider his emotions without being consumed by his emotions. He, he doesn't allow the presence of the difficulty to cause him to doubt who God is. 
his feelings in the moment don't change his theology. He acknowledges that God is real, that God is still good, but he, he acknowledges all the things that have caused him hurt, that have caused him harm, but he also acknowledges where his help comes from. He's able to consider his difficulties and pains without being consumed by them. And this isn't always easy to do, is it, saints? It's very easy for us, when, especially when we're in pain. Pain and suffering has the ability seemingly to, to, to dictate what we see and what we're thinking. It seems to consume all of our thoughts, and yet we see this reorientation in David's life when he's fearing for his life, when he's been betrayed by one he trusted, one who was his friend. In this single song, we see David is able to put his mind on the reality that is greater than the reality of his pain. Because he can acknowledge the greater reality of God's goodness. He's able to move forward and not be conquered by even the most difficult of circumstances. Being able to reorient ourselves to see the goodness of God in times of lament is a very powerful thing. And it can save us actually from a number of things. Being able to reorient ourselves and think on and focus on God and remember him is very powerful and can save us from a number of things, one of which is despair. Despair. Being able to reorient ourselves towards God can save us from despair. I want to make sure I explain what I mean when I say despair. I'm not just talking about sadness. We're going to experience sadness in here. Despair as I looked it up in the dictionary, it is described or defined as the utter loss of hope. The utter loss of hope. We've established in this series so far that it is beneficial for us to allow ourselves to process, to acknowledge, experience, and express our emotions. I've said that we can't really fully pursue mental and emotional wholeness and flourishing if we are pretending that our negative emotions aren't there, if we're only suppressing those emotions. And every, pretty much every psychologist, psychiatrist would agree that suppressing and ignoring our emotions is bad for us long term. And even though we know this, we still oftentimes don't allow ourselves to process and deal with our emotions. Even though we know this and understand this to be true, we still have this, this tendency in ourselves to want to suppress and not allow ourselves to grieve the loss of things that are worthy of grieving. Some of you probably during the sermon last week I talked about the benefit of writing down different, different hurts, writing out and writing through our grief. And I imagine some of you were a little afraid of doing that. And some of you had a, had a, had a, a tendency and a desire to say, no, I, I don't want to go that far. I don't want to dive into those waters. I don't want to process those painful emotions. I believe we're often afraid of where those emotions might take us. We know that we should process them, but honestly, oftentimes we're really just not here for that. We're not trying to do that. That's not something that we want to engage in. I think we're afraid that if, we're part, if we process our painful emotions, that maybe we'll spiral into misery. Right? Maybe we'll be given to despair, that we won't be able to find any type of hope or joy or peace. And deep down, it reveals that we believe it's better to create a false reality and try not to let ourselves grieve even though there are things in our, life, in, our, in our lives, in our world, that are worthy of grieving. And we've com concluded that emotionally, trying to live a lie just feels better than acknowledging the actual emotional responses that we are dealing with and going through by living in a fallen and broken world. 
that we found it to be more comfortable to just live as if things aren't as bad, or try to live as if things aren't as bad as they actually are. It strikes fear in our hearts. And we'd rather sabotage our own mental and emotional well-being than deal with our pain and sadness and grief. I'm convinced that oftentimes we don't want to walk through that darkness because we think the darkness will overtake us. I believe we don't feel we'd be able to handle it. We don't, we don't feel we'd be able to, to sustain and have any amount of joy and peace if we actually walk through the darkness, if we actually allow ourselves to process and deal with the problems, the pain, the hurt, the abandonment, the neglect, the grief, the compounding grief that we oftentimes experience. And I want to tell us what that actually means we believe about God as Christians. It means that we don't believe that we can find enough peace in being with God to be able to deal with the darkness. We don't believe that he can actually sustain us. We don't believe that we will act, that he can supernaturally give us the peace and the strength that we need to do what we need to do to promote our own well-being. We don't trust him, which is why we fear despair, which is why we think we will be given to despair, we'll be given to hopelessness. Ultimately, hopelessness is the belief that the darkness has won. It's the belief that the darkness is too great. If this is you, you might notice in your life a what's the point attitude when encouraged to seek God and pray to him about whatever's going on with you. You might have an attitude of, wow, what, what, what's the point? I don't expect God to be able to sustain me. I don't expect him to be able to find any joy in him if I am walking through this. I don't expect to be able to find any peace in my heart that strengthens me to be able to do this. So why would I engage in that? Here's another way we say it. I mean, why would I pray to God? It's not like he's going to fix it. It's not like the problems are going to go away. I want to expose what we're saying when we say that. We are saying that we only truly believe we can find peace and joy if our circumstances change. We don't believe that we can find peace in the solid rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ. It exposes that we only truly believe that we can be okay if the circumstances change. So if I don't believe that God is going to change this, whatever it is, then why even go to him in prayer? Why even pour my heart out to him? It's because we don't believe that he is actually our refuge. We believe that the only safe place we can possibly have is if we can get away from whatever this thing is that is troubling us. But Jesus said, Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, that our peace is not a place that we go. It's a person that is with us at all times. We don't trust him. We don't believe him to be the prince of peace, as Isaiah says. We don't believe him to be the God of all comfort, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. We think peace and joy are only circumstantial, so we can't imagine how we might have peace if our circumstances do not change. And we need to be, we need to be honest with ourselves and be able to acknowledge that we don't believe what Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7 says. Verse 6 reads, do not be anxious Right? The definition of that Greek word for anxious is to be overly troubled by the cares of this world. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Go to him with the cares that you have in your heart. Bring it to him. Take it to him. Verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts 
and your minds in Christ Jesus. Ultimately, we don't believe that that will actually happen. We don't trust him to give us his peace when we practice prayer and thanksgiving in all things. So we ask, what's the point? We get very apathetic. And so if you, if you conclude that God won't change your circumstances, you wallow in apathy towards seeking God in times of trouble, and you develop a defeatist mindset where you have no expectation for God to actually provide for you anything that you need to be able to deal with the difficulties of this world. And we live in a way that's so defeatist that now the only thing we have left to do, left to do is just try not to think about it. And our only hope is just, well, I'll pretend that it's not there. I'm not going to think about it. And if somebody brings it up, then I'll try to change the subject. I, see, I love the way the psalmist writes in Psalm 42, verse 5 and 6. So this isn't David. It's another psalmist. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you see, David isn't isn't just left with with just the option of ignoring it and acting like it's not there. In the Psalms, the Psalms more on more than one occasion speak to themselves and say, "Why are you downcast? Go praise the Lord and think on Him. Think on His goodness. Think on His mercy. Think on His faithfulness, His love, His presence. Hope in Him. Praise Him, the God of our salvation." Reorient yourself to God in the middle of times of grief and pain. I'm not saying you're always going to be smiling. I'm not saying you're always going to be happy. I'm saying you can still have hope and find peace in the Lord as we reorient our minds, our hearts to him. I love what he says at the end of verse 6. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. Oftentimes when we're cast down, we see that as reason enough to no longer pursue God or seek God. But that's not what the psalmist does here. He says, my soul is cast down within me, therefore, he's saying, because of that, I remember God. Because of the pain, I go to God. It is so easy for us in times of difficulty to turn away from God, to run away from him. The psalmist says here, and this is our example, that therefore, because we are cast down, we go to him. The psalmist is not having a defeatist or apathetic mindset or posture towards God, but instead sees the difficulty as a, and pain as reason to run to him to find refuge. When we reorient ourselves to remember God, God uses that to save us from our despair. It doesn't mean it won't be difficult. It doesn't mean it won't hurt. It means he will provide hope and peace for us as we seek him. Reorienting ourselves not only saves us from despair, it also saves us from what I'm going to call today a victim mentality. A victim Mentality. I, want, I need you to give me a minute because I, I, I want to unpack what I, exactly what I mean when I say this. I want to come back around and, and bring up and show how this relates to reorientation. I need to take a few minutes just to explain what I mean when I say victim mentality. There are many people, many of us, because of the way we've been victimized in our past, because of the pain we've experienced in our past, we allow our victimization and pain to be the primary defining factor of our identity. I want to say that again. We oftentimes allow 
our victimization and our pain to be the primary defining factor of our identity. So there's an act that's caused a lot of pain and loss and grief that can consume us. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to be highly affected when you've been mistreated or because of your pain. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that that's wrong at all. What I am saying is that there are some of us who perceive life, I'm going to say this lovingly, we perceive life in a distorted way because we've allowed the pain we've experienced or the victimization that we've experienced to create a new lens, a distorted lens by which we now see the world. And so we now interpret everything in our lives as if we are victims that have played no role in our own difficult circumstances. Let me try to give a little bit of an example to help you see what I mean. Some of us have been told many times, or maybe we've just experienced this, we've been told that we were failures. Maybe we failed at a few different things that we thought we were going to be good at, we thought we were going to accept. And so then after that, we begin to internalize that thought, and now that begins to determine our perspective on our identity. So now we're, we're afraid to maybe try new things, or maybe even when we're doing things well, all we can focus on is what we, we did wrong because we've internalized the fact that we're failures. This is the case for, for many people. See, what we internalize dictates the way that we view occurrences that we have in our lives, dictates the way that we interpret different events in our lives. For some of us, it's deeper and even more hurtful than that. For some of us, we've been victims of neglect, abandonment, betrayal, like David. For some of us, that list could go on and on. We've experienced great pain from victimization. And what's happened is, unbeknownst to us, we now have a tendency to read every situation and every relationship that we're now in that causes us pain. So every situation, every relationship that we're in that causes us pain, now we interpret it as if we're, still, we're the, the victim in the situation. Because now the lens has been created because we've internalized and now that's how we view the relationships that we're in. That's how we, we view the interactions that we have. That if I experience pain, then I am the victim here. So in all of our painful relationship experience you've had, even if you've contributed as much sin, even if we've contributed as much sin and wrongdoing as the, as the other person, we really only see that person's sin and we see ourselves as kind of the innocent victim. And honestly, if you've been victimized a lot in your life, I would recommend you going to someone that you trust that will tell you the truth no matter, how, no matter whether or not you like it and ask them if this is true of you. I want to encourage you through the power of the Holy Spirit to ask that question to someone who will tell you the truth, even if you don't want to hear it. If you haven't acquired this victim mentality, you need to know, else you will not be able to fight against it. So, maybe a few questions to ask yourself. Think about the problems that you have. Think about the things that ail you the most. Are those things always somebody else's fault? Are those things always a result of your circumstances? Do you not have any responsibility in those things from your perspective? Is it pretty much always someone else's fault? I mean, you may have done a little bit wrong, but in all the relationship problems you've had in the past, is it always someone else's fault? Are you always the one whose life is worse because of what someone did to you? Would everything in your life, especially your relationships, be okay if everyone else just behaved as good as you do? Is your inability to maybe succeed in ways that you thought you would be able to succeed always only a result of bad circumstances or things that other people did wrong? 
How many times have the people that try to tell you that you're responsible to some degree for your situation, how many times have they been told by you that they just don't understand? Do you constantly feel like those who are trying to tell you that you have a degree of fault in your current difficult situation, do you constantly feel like they don't understand because they haven't been in a situation like yours before? If that's how you feel, it's very likely you have adopted a victim's mentality that you are unable to see your own contributions and responsibility to our own problems and issues. Dr. Judith Orloff, she's a professor of psychology, I believe at UCLA, describing victim mentality, she has this to say, the victim grates on you. So this is actually someone who uh, is trying to identify whether or not someone they are in a close relationship with uh, kind of has or portrays this victim mentality. The victim grates on you with a poor me attitude and is allergic to taking responsibility for their actions. People are always against them and the reason for their unhappiness. They portray themselves as unfortunates who demand to be rescued and they will make you into their therapist. I point that out because we need to be able to recognize in ourselves and in our family when this is prevalent. Victim mentality is so damaging because it prevents us from being able to actually pursue growth and pursue our own healing because we refuse to take responsibility. Victim mentality is incredibly crippling. It's crippling for you because now you don't get to experience the joy of actually taking responsibility and taking steps towards growth and healing. And it's crippling for others because of the weight that you put on them as the one that's always wrong, as the one that always doesn't understand, as the one that's always being blamed for the problems. See, what happens is it's this vicious cycle of we are victimized in some way, and then we embrace this victim mentality, and the victim mentality victimizes us even more because it prevents us from being able to actively take steps towards growth. Victim mentality is your enemy. It is an enemy, and it robs you of so much joy and flourishing and thriving and prospering because we want to admit our own fault because we're so busy blaming everyone else. So someone with a victim's mentality ends up convinced that they're a helpless victim of their circumstance because everything that is hindering and harmful to them is external and not internal, which means there's nothing they can really do about it. So oftentimes they end up bitter. Oftentimes they end up bitter towards God because they don't feel any any sense of ability or agency to be able to pursue their own healing and everything is, is, is circumstantial, everything is external, away from them, which they cannot change, so they feel hopeless. Victim mentality will lead you to further and further, oftentimes into despair. Resentful, bitter towards God, with the mindset of, God, haven't I been through enough? And lacking the joy and sense of dignity that comes from being able to play a role in our own healing and progress and flourishing. Some of us need to have some real honest conversations with our life group this week. Some real honest conversations with people that you are sure that you already know who they are. And this is something that ails them. This is something that harms them. I'm not saying come in like you're holier than them, like you're more righteous than them or anything like that. But you have to understand that that victim mentality is sucking the joy out of them. It's sucking the hope out of them. And we want better for our brothers and sisters in the faith. We need to 
be reminded that we have been made new in Christ through faith in him, that our victimization does not define us. Okay, so how does all that have to do with reorientation? The Christian that lives with a victim mentality is in desperate need of reorientation, in desperate need of reorienting our thoughts towards the Lord. The, the, the Christian with the victim mentality is so consumed by and focused on their victimization that they've allowed how they've been victimized to tell them more about their identity than they allow God and the Bible to tell them about who they are. We've let our enemy tell us who we are more than we've let our Savior tell us who we are. The reality in this world that we all must face is that we're all victims. That every one of us is victims. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, in the beginning of the verse, it says very plainly, for as in Adam, all die. He's saying that because of the sin that Adam committed, all of us now experience death in a variety of ways. Your body from the day you were born is moving towards breaking down and dying. In the process, in the meantime, we experience illness. We, we experience our bodies breaking down with different injuries and different problems, different medical issues that are going on. And Adam all die. Our bodies break down. Every possession that you have right now one day will fall apart. Every relationship that you have right now will not continue to last in the way, at least not in the way that it currently is because everyone will die because in Adam all die. The reality is that we're all victims. So it is appropriate that we lament, that we bring all of our difficulties to the Lord. That is real. That is true. That is worthy to be mourned. That is worthy to be lamented. That is worth our sadness. But people of God, there is another truth that has been that we have been made new in Christ. That is greater than the truth that in Adam we all die. You don't have to look very far to find it. It's right there in First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. It's the second part of the verse. Paul writes, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He's saying there's, there's two realities here that might seem like a contradiction. One of them is that the curse of sin is very real, and we have been victimized because of it, and all of us are victims, but there's a greater reality that we are also victors in Christ. The reality for the Christian is that you are not more of a victim than you are a victor. You are more of a victor than you are a victim because in Christ, we will go and reign with him over everything that ails us. Practicing reorientation for the Christian that has adopted a victim mentality looks like remembering that even though I'm a victim of many things, I am also a victor in Christ. It's remembering that I am more healed than I am broken. I am more forgiven than I am guilty, that I am given more grace. God has given me more grace than I have sinned inside of me. God has given me more than, he, than has been taken away from me. And one day soon, I'm going to go on to be with him where victimization will only be a thing of my past. I am more of a victor than I am a victim if I am in Christ. We're in need of reorientation which would allow us to actually take responsibility for our actions because we're not just helpless victims, but we are the people of God who have been empowered by the Spirit of God that lives in us. One with a victim mentality will be slow to repent because they'll be slow to acknowledge their own problems and their own toxic behaviors, but one who knows that we have been empowered by God to walk in his victory is able to repent and grow out of living in ways that are not honoring to God and are not beneficial for us. If you've 
been empowered by the Spirit, you can identify and turn away from the behavior patterns that are negatively affecting us. We can practice humility and listen and receive correction from our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can see ourselves the way that God sees us as victors and not just victims. And we can walk in the joy and freedom of actually being able to pursue growth in the Lord. Actually being able to live lives that are spiritually fruitful in him. That we're actually able to partner with the Holy Spirit, work through the problems, work through the issues, and see him grow us and progress us and help us to flourish as his people. We need reorientation. We need to reorient and redirect our thoughts to think on the Lord and his goodness. For the Christian, reorientation is after lamenting the darkness of this world, we remember what we see in John chapter 1, verse 5, where it says the light, and this is talking about Jesus, shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. When we are given to either misery or a victim mentality, we're actually allowing our minds to be overcome by the darkness of this world. But when we fight against those enemies via reorientation, it's like we're walking through the darkness still, but it's like we're holding on to the light. It's like walking through the darkness, but having a light that we're holding on to that the darkness can't overcome. And we walk through the darkness holding on to the light that penetrates the darkness and shines bright because the darkness cannot overcome it. You'll have the courage to walk through darkness if you know that the light that you have is stronger than the darkness that you're in. If you know that he is the light that comes in to invade the darkness and provide for us what we need to continue on our way. I think it's very helpful the way that John phrases that verse in, in John chapter 1 verse 5 when he says that, that the darkness came into the light and the darkness, or the light came into the darkness but the darkness could not overtake it. Because I believe you could actually use that type of a framework to understand 100% of what Jesus came to do into the earth, when he came to the earth. He came to walk into the darkness and shine his light. When you see him healing people, he's stepping into the darkness of this world. He shines his light and the darkness cannot maintain itself. It falls apart at his very command. When you see him give sight to the blind man that is brought to him, there's someone who literally walked in darkness and now are able to see light and appreciate and benefit from the light of day. Every Christian in this room was once a part of the kingdom of darkness, but have now been rescued out of it. We were once enslaved by the darkness, but now the sun has set us free from the darkness. And when he went to the cross, he took on the full weight of the darkness. He took on the full weight of everything that the darkness had to offer. He bore our sin, our guilt, our shame. He suffered. He was crucified. He was oppressed. And he died under the full weight of the darkness. But he didn't stay dead. And he came up. And this light continued to shine as he was raised from the dead. If you are in Christ, the darkness cannot conquer you because you are in him. And he is the light that shines in the darkness. And the darkness cannot overcome it. Jesus came to save us. He has always been about the work of infiltrating the darkness and shining his light on it, which means for the Christian, reorienting our thoughts to remember our God and who he is, is the practical work of applying the good news of the salvation of Jesus to our thought life in the middle of our pain and in the middle of our suffering. It is bringing to bear the realities of the gospel 
in our lives, when we reorient ourselves to remember the one that came into the darkness. I want to read verse 23 again. I have one, a couple closing remarks. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not, shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. Once again, David has lamented his problems and pain. He has reoriented his thoughts back to God. He has chosen to trust God with the things that have harmed him. And he concludes by saying, God, I trust you with this. I trust you. I trust who you say that you are. I remember, I remind myself of who you say you are. I trust you. So we trust, in following in that example, we trust that if we're afraid to process our negative emotions, that he will sustain us through the darkness. We trust that if we are in despair because of our pain and our grief, we trust that he can give us joy and peace right here and right now, even in this life. And if we have allowed the wrong done to us to tell us who we ultimately are, that we are just a helpless victim, we trust him that when he tells us that we are victors, even when we don't feel like it. And I'll conclude with Romans chapter 8, verse 37, where it reads, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for being stronger than the darkness, for being able to free us from the darkness. Father, for being our hope, for being our joy, for being our peace. Father, I, I ask today on behalf of anyone who is just afraid of their grief, afraid of their pain, Father, that you would give new strength, new joy, and new peace afresh to us through your Holy Spirit. Father, that you will empower us to be able to face the darkness and understand that we can trust you to be able to give us your peace when we cast our cares on you, when we bring all of our anxieties to you. Father, I ask, I ask on behalf of the one that is afraid or the ones that are afraid to deal with the grief. Father, remind us of how big you are, how mighty you are, and how good you are to us. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.